Welcome to another installment in my series on medical decision-making. I doubt this series will ever end. How can it? Our experiments of one, or societal experiments of medical action or inaction, never ceases. I met our guest, Dr. Daniel Matlock, at a conference recently. Dr. Matlock is the director of the Colorado Program for Patient-Centered Decisions at the Adult and Child Consortium for Outcomes Research and Delivery Science at the University of Colorado. He is board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and palliative care. His research aims to fundamentally change and improve how patients decide about invasive cardiovascular technologies. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Dan, welcome. Thank you. It's... uh. Very nice of you to um, join us today. I wanted to just start with a little getting to know you. Can you think back about the first time you were aware that health was fragile? What was happening at that time in your life? That's such a great question. And you did warn me about this question ahead of time. So I had some time to think about it. And I couldn't come up with a specific event, but I have some thoughts on it. I grew up in the suburbs, pretty safe, white kid, not really any challenges growing up. My grandparents lived in Texas and they died when I was in high school or later. So I didn't deal with a lot of death growing up. I was a healthy kid, didn't deal with a lot of illness growing up, myself or in my family. And as I think of the things that kind of drove me to medicine, it wasn't like some experience of the fragility of life. But then I will say, When I got in through engineering training and I get into residency and I'm seeing patients, I got, I don't think I got officially depressed, but I was pretty down about the culture of medicine. And it was just how we do things to people instead of with them. And it was because they were fragile that I didn't like what I was seeing. And that's what has driven me into the research that I'm doing because we haven't done a good job as a medical culture acknowledging the fragility. In many ways, we try to fight it. We try to fight it. Somewhere in the last hundred years, people getting sick and dying went from being sad and tragic at times to being a failure of science or a failure of medicine. And I think somewhere that well-intended thing that happened went awry. Yeah, That's what pushed me into palliative care and geriatrics and hospice because I felt like these were the underserved people because we weren't really dealing with the fragility. And then I think, especially the hospice and palliative care work, I've always said, yeah, some of these things are really hard. I've had patients that I've teared up with, and I'm not a big crier generally, but real experiences. And I think it's made me a better husband and a better father, because it does just remind you daily that life is fragile. And that, re- that daily reminder of fragility 
enriches my life. It reminds me that, okay, this was a bad day, but I need to put a smile on because my kids need that and I'll be happier too. Yeah. And it's that reminder that does that. On your uh, LinkedIn page, you say, I'm trying to understand and improve how older adults make decisions surrounding invasive technologies. What was the first decision you had to make or what was an early decision you had to make about your own your own health or your your family's health? Yeah, that's the thing that I really in my own family, my personal life, there haven't been many. I will say lately. I have had to make medical decisions. I'm a little overweight mm-hmm. and um, have some of the challenges of that now that I'm getting in. I'm getting a little older mm-hmm. and I have sleep apnea. I take I have mild diabetes. So I most of the medical decisions I've been facing with are sort of these chronic, you might say small decisions, but over time they have big consequences. So like uh, lifestyle decisions? Lifestyle medicines. There's a new weight loss medicine that they proposed to me that I was looking for a decision aid. What are the pros and cons of this? Do we really know if this is good? And those kinds of decisions are the ones that I've really been faced with personally. Mm -hmm. I've been so lucky personally. My wife's been healthy. My kids are healthy. Although, Although through the pandemic, some of my kids' mental health issues have started coming out. Yeah, Um, And I'm definitely starting to wrestle with some decisions there. Yeah. Um, I have a, a kid who has gender dysphoria, who's 14, who's wanting to take hormones. And I want to support him as for who he is. Mm-hmm. And I know hormones aren't that great. Testosterone hasn't been all that great for men in some ways. Certainly right. from a cardiovascular perspective, it hasn't been that great for men. Yeah. That's what I'm wrestling with now. My wife and I are. Yeah. But yeah, it's a hard question because I'm not one of these people who has this experience. It was hard writing essays in med school because that's what a lot of people write about is some beautiful experience. And I just didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. But so here you are and your focus is on making decisions and working with people. So what goes into that, into developing decision aids? What does that mean? Like, how do you decide what to work on? What goes into developing something? How do you know it's any good? Who's it for? I just get all these questions about, yeah. 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 The whole idea of a lot of the work I do in decision aids are a bit of a hot topic. How I got into them was funny. It was when I was a geriatric fellow. I did my residency and then I I was debating, do I want to do geriatrics or palliative care? And I was thinking of actually trying to go get boarded in both. And I I am boarded in both, but I only did a fellowship in geriatrics. But during my geriatric fellowship, I was working in our VA nursing home. And there were two patients that I was caring for who were there for hospice care. And both of them had these defibrillators, which is one of those cardiac interventions that I have gotten into. Mm-hmm. And they, one of them had metastatic cancer, colon cancer, and he was dying from that. And the other had an incurable infection that had been seeded several of his artificial joints mm-hmm. and was not clearing with weeks and weeks of antibiotics. And he was getting weaker and couldn't stand. And so he moved to hospice. But both of them didn't want to turn off their defibrillator. Mm-hmm. So now I have these two people in the nursing home dying of other causes with this device that's going to potentially shock them once they get to that phase. Mm -hmm. And I talked to them and all their goals are, doc, just make me comfortable. Mm -hmm. But when we turned to this defibrillator, I would hear things like, oh, like one of the patient's spouse said, oh, 
the VA is trying to kill my husband now. Or one of the others, one of the others thought I was playing God. Mm. And we did a three hour family meeting with him. I remember. And one of his daughters said, dad, we're not playing God. We're turning it over to God. And then he paused and leaned back and said, okay, that makes sense. Maybe let's turn this off and let me go naturally. But that those experiences yeah, and yeah. through training made me think, wow, people have no idea what we're doing to them. Yeah. And these are guys with permanently implanted resuscitation devices that didn't even know you could turn them off. Didn't know that the potential life-saving benefit is also potentially harmful. And that's when I said, you know, I'm going to work on this. I want to work on this problem. I think this could be, mm-hmm. this could be a career for me that wouldn't make me sad about our culture. Mm-hmm. Fighting a piece of our culture that I really don't like, mm-hmm. which is this culture of doing things to people instead of with them. Mm-hmm. And so then I go into a research fellowship, start designing some projects, did some little interviews and surveys, and just really learned that that people didn't really know much about them. So that's how I got into decision aids. Mm-hmm. Like, here's this group of people making decision aids. And really, decision aids are just tools. They're just tools to support a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's really about trying to empower patients to understand what's going on and trying to get docs to be honest, not that they're dishonest, but to not, we tend to oversell the benefits Mm -hmm. and sort of downplay the risks. There's a lot of research that we do that Mm -hmm. because we mean well by our patients Mm -hmm. and we want them to feel safe and comfortable. And I'm not sure, not sure that's always right. We're adults. Mm -hmm. Life is fragile. As you Mm -hmm. started out, maybe if we could be honest, people could then make, accurate decisions for them. And that's what got me into decision aids. So you asked what goes into developing them and yeah. what goes into making them. I think that was your question. I have a long answer getting Oh, that's this is good. It's <laughs> okay. um, it's good. It's good background. It's good. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So then making them is really about stakeholder input. And we we try to design these tools for both patients and doctors. Right. There are hundreds of decision aids that have been shown to be effective in little trials that are sitting on shelves. I I think one of the problems is they were mostly designed with the patients in mind. And then, because I've heard from docs, oh, I saw that tool. I don't really like it. That's not how I talk. Mm -hmm. And we'll use them. And then we also hear from patients, they want to hear from their doc. And so we've tried to design tools that docs are willing to use. So you have two groups of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And then we iterate. We do rapid prototyping, iterating, Mm -hmm. making some tool. We, We have it based on some theory. There's international guidelines and things. But really, we start with those, make a version, and then we iterate trying to get it accurate. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the easiest piece. But then to get it accurate and readable, that's when the debate happens, because the docs always want to add more nuance that right. actually doesn't really help the patient, I think. Right. And the hardest piece is making sure it's unbiased. And most of the tools we have, by the time we're done making them, the patients think it's, it's good, but slightly biased towards the intervention. And the docs think, eh, it's good, but slightly biased against the intervention. Okay. <laughs> and then that's how I know maybe we've hit a sweet spot of something people right. are willing to use. So in my view, it isn't necessarily two parties. It's more often three. There's the caregiver, the family member, whether it's a partner or a child or a parent. How does that figure in when you're thinking about perceptions of stakeholders Yep. I think that's a key question. And honestly, my answer is it's different for different decisions. And that just comes from experience. For example, my that weight loss medicine I mentioned for myself, mm-hmm. 
I talked about it with my doc and maybe I mentioned it to my wife and she's mm-hmm. certainly supportive of it, but she wasn't involved in that. But, but the, the defibrillator was yes. definite. What you started with was that was the family was big in that one. Exactly. And so I think as the stakes of the decisions go up, okay, defibrillators, or we do some work in the heart failure space with these partial artificial hearts, some of these like chemotherapies and things. I think as the stakes go up, as the illness, as the person gets sicker, family just becomes more and more important. Okay. And I do primary care in a seniors clinic right now. And we encourage families to come to every visit for that very reason, because somebody's involved helping Mm -hmm. the person navigate. Even somebody with mild or moderate dementia can still make some decisions for themselves. They often need a family. As the patient gets sicker and as the decision, as the stakes of whatever decision go up, family becomes much more important. So some of our other decision aids, we even have a page for family because they're so important. In my um, earlier podcast, my first like series I did in my podcast was young adults with complex conditions who were transitioning from pediatric to adult medicine. And so it was the other end of it. They were either young young adults or they had been recently young adults. And they talked, and there was like a parent, and they talked about the taking, I was going to say taking back. As you get older, when as you become a teen, then you start reacting to decisions that are made on your behalf. Right, and right. You, and, or the parent is trying to guide you into some agency, some taking control of your own care where they've had the habit of making decisions for you. So it's interesting, this coming into decisions, um, coming out of decisions. And then for me, so I'm a person with multiple sclerosis and I see six or seven different specialists and I'm a nurse and I'm knowledgeable about all this stuff, but it's just, there's so many decisions to make. And I put my effort into building the team that I trust. And then I'm just delighted to let them make the decisions because it's like putting in a new kitchen. There's just too many decisions to make. And I don't want to like decide about all the knobs and hinges and finishes. Do you know what I mean? It's you're my neurologist. What do you recommend? I'm going to do it unless it has something to do with some specific things that I'm being really careful about. I guess when I was thinking about who are decision aids for and who aren't they for, like how do you navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Nobody, if you have pressure chest pain and you go to the ER you don't want a decision should you take aspirin or not when you're having a heart attack. You just want to trust the people taking care of you. And I think that's a lot of it. I think there's a, a subset of decisions where decision aids have a really nice place. And I tend to think those are some of the bigger decisions with big trade-offs like a defibrillator or a left ventricular assist device, or I'm working with a neurology faculty member who wants to do the deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, a surgical implanted thing that can help but doesn't really help with the mood. It only helps with movements. There's trade-offs there mm-hmm. and it needs to be patient-centered. And so I think decision aids can help in these complex decisions, help slow things down a little bit so that the patient can look at it, maybe read it at home, maybe share it with a family and and, and also help the doc have those discussions so you have richer conversations. I think mm-hmm. those are the niche 
I think, for a decision aid. Now, you'll get varying opinions on that. And there are some people who think we should have a decision aid for everything. Although I think people are starting to realize the impracticality of that. So I like them for the big high stakes decisions. But I think that shared decision-making approach is what I use in clinic when I'm talking to somebody with multiple chronic illnesses and medicines. And every now and then a little shared decision pops up. Like, for example, incontinence. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people have incontinence. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have meds that help, but they have side effects. Yeah. They're not going to save their life. They're actually not going to do anything for this person. And maybe I can help you not wake up five times at night with this little medicine, but it might make you feel dizzy. Or... Or maybe I can help you stop avoiding that urge sensation, but it might make your mouth dry and your eyes water. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then I switch into this little approach of, I can't really make a recommendation for you. I can tell you what you're getting into and then let's talk about it. And if it doesn't go well, let's, we can stop it. We can try it. So some of those, and I would say that's a lower stakes decision because the medicine is generally not life-threatening and can be stopped and the side effect goes away. But I think that sort of shared decision-making mm-hmm. approach of not seeing that I just need to recommend everything to that person, but I need a little, hear a little from you. Mm-hmm. You know, is this so bad you're willing to tolerate some dry mouth and dry eyes? Mm-hmm. Okay, if it is, let's try it. Yeah. And then, And some people say yes, some people say no. And I don't think we in our culture, our hidden curriculum of medicine doesn't teach that. Our hidden curriculum yeah. of medicine teaches that we need to recommend things and people came to us for care, just as you said, which is true. And even within that person's goals and values often matter. So where I'm moving some of the grants and things I'm writing now, or how can we use these tools, but how can we get it to be more than just a checkbox that you used a tool for at least one of the tools that's mandated mm-hmm. and that we get you to have that rich conversation where you really explore what are your goals? What are you hoping for the rest of your life? Danny, like, what do you want to get out of the rest of your life? Let me, and then instead of making a recommendation based on the medicine and evidence, you need this based on the medicine and evidence. And based on the fact that you told me you want to live as long as possible and you don't mind getting shocked. I think you ought to try a defibrillator. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I'm with you. I'm sharing it. I'm, I still made a recommendation, mm-hmm. but I didn't just recommend it based on your, medical chart Mm -hmm. eligibility it was also based on your life and your goals and your values and i think another thing you're saying that is that sometimes certainly whether you're going to have surgery or not is like a one-time decision because you can't really take it back you had the surgery but most some of them I better not say how many because I really don't know. But many of them are not about one decision. What I look for in my team is those clinicians that are responsive so that if we make a decision, then we know when do we have to talk? When is it good to talk? Because, like you said, maybe the dry mouth is, like, so bad that it's affect my blood pressure. Because yeah, I'm, right. I'm, like, hypovolemic. I don't have enough fluid. But um, so it's more longitudinal, meaning it's over time. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. So that brings to the one of the other things that just... I've just been trying to get my head around for 20 years, which is 
So when we use decision aids and we make decisions, it doesn't seem like we have a systematic way to, okay, we made this decision. So then what happened? Now, you and I, you're my doctor, you and I can do that because we have a relationship. We're, we're still seeing how it goes. We're in the middle of the experiment of one and we're keeping track of it. But on a population basis, on all the people that made defibrillator decisions or all the people that made prostate surgery decisions or whatever, how did it end up going? And it seems like we don't consistently take advantage of that ongoing experience. I'm finding it harder and harder to talk about because yeah. as I learn more about it, because it's complicated. Yeah. But so as a, from a point of view of a clinician, a decision aid person, a researcher, like, how do you look at that? You know, how do you look at what did people do with the decision aids I had a hand in developing? Oh yeah. That's, there's a lot of questions there for just, the first thing you said that we're talking about, a, most decisions are not these single one-off decisions. Most of them, I think that's absolutely true. And in some of the decision aid innovation we're trying to do, we're actually getting into this roadmap space. Okay. We wrote a paper yeah. called Develop, where, okay, you got diagnosed with heart failure. Here are some of the major things you might expect. And your map, your road, your travels may go this way, or that you might go towards a transplant or not. And just to prepare people. And then it's all about goals and values. But again, we make another decision aid. How do we get people to use it? How do we get it in the electronic system? How do we learn from other people as we go? And that gets into the, the learning healthcare system stuff. That's a hot topic right now. Mm -hmm. We learn from the ongoing activity that we're doing because there's a lot of knowledge there that is just getting lost daily. Um, a lot of experiential knowledge. It's just mm -hmm. getting that we, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have an answer on how to capitalize on that, except to empathize that you're asking the right question. How can we learn about how this is being used? I'll, I'll tell you, we have not done a great job integrating our tools within our electronic medical record. I work University of Colorado, and we work with UC Health Hospitals, and great hospital, but their priority now is expanding across the state of Colorado. And so my little research project is just pretty low on their list when I talk about their electronic medical record programmers who are trying to open up new clinics and support mm -hmm. the staff. And so it's been hard. That's Those are hard stakeholders to work with, to get yeah. these things in the system. And nothing against UC Health. I'm not saying that. Well, it sounds <laughs> like you're not alone. Your system yeah, yeah, isn't not. alone as a clinician or a researcher. You're not alone in this. It's the competing um, priorities. Yeah, that's just the way it is. I really was interested in this like 20 years ago and spent five or six years trying to promote this with zero success. But then recently, meaning the last few years, as I became more interested in health equity and the diversity of people's lived experience, I thought that this was a way to study 
the impact of decisions on diverse populations by doing some sort of systematic, even though the original research might have been done in this particular setting with this particular circumstances, because that's what research wants. But then does it work with women? Does it work with people with rare disease? Does it? It's like the people who weren't part of the research. And so this is an opportunity to test it in that diversity. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. We've been talking to Dr. Dan Matlock, the Director of Colorado Programs for Patient-Centered Decisions at the University of Colorado. One of the, yeah, one of the big challenges, especially with communication, patient communication and shared decision-making research, is there's nothing in the chart that really tells you how the conversation went. Yes. Um, So you either have to record the encounters or you have to survey people, both of which are really hard to do on a big, broad system scale. And that's in the research space. The One of the next grants I'm writing is going to be doing recorded encounters so that we can really see, did these tools actually make that conversation better? And did the docs actually ask about your goals and your, because that's really what we want. That's the behavior that we want to translate across all decisions. But yeah, that makes it, for the shared decision-making and the patient-centered kinds of questions, that encounter is such a black box. Even if it's the patient, the family, and clinicians and nurses, it's still, once it's done, nobody really knows what happened from perspective. Which, like, Um, this makes me crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get the challenges, but, oh, anyway. So what do you think we, in this area, what do you think we should have been talking about that maybe we haven't covered? If you're thinking about people who are listening, so my listeners or readers are pretty broad in the sense that they're like my hats. There are people who are patient activists. There are patients, people who are caregivers, clinicians, decision scientists, Mm -hmm. um, researchers, but they're all similar in that they're they're really into the connection between real life and clinical decisions. So if you think about that audience and you're like thinking about what we're sharing about decision-making and decision aids, what, what do you think, what else do you think we should be talking about? The purpose of these things is really trying to get the patient's goals and values into the decision mm-hmm. and making it easier for the doc to have that discussion. And I guess the message would be don't throw the baby out with the bathwater there. Mm-hmm. And also I think decision aids, if they didn't work in the past, I think there's a lot of room for innovation and improvement. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of design decisions that we haven't studied very well that might make more effective tools, and more effective conversations. 
design decisions. So some examples. One of the big things is do you design something that the patient reviews out of the clinic or in the clinic? Oh, oh I see. If it's out of the clinic, it could be a video. We've made some of these. Right. If it's in the clinic, maybe it needs to be a little short one-page group at Mayo that has done some beautiful tools that were designed for in the clinic. But there are also tools that a patient wouldn't have an easy time reviewing on their own at home necessarily. And so that maybe we need to rethink our design decisions on what these things should look like. Yeah. One of the things, like I had a gig working with some people on MS treatments. And one of the things that I found myself advocating for in my patient expert hat was where do I go to get my questions answered? Because while I'm sitting with you, the clinician, we're together for, we're lucky if we're together for half an hour with five minutes related to this decision. That would be like a lot. But then I go home. And I'm slow and that it takes me a while. I got to talk to my wife about it. Maybe I would have recorded the conversation and then I would go home to my wife and he wants to give me gabapentine for whatever. And it's then the questions start to come. Yeah. You know, and it's not like... It's not like at the right time. So one of the things I tried to advocate for in those decision aids was including... How do you get information when you have the question? Is it okay to go to Dr. Google or is there a helpline or should I go to the portal or what should I do to, and so to me, that needs to be part of the design is questions when I have them. Yep. I, yeah, I think that's a great comment. I do think it's hard to know you give a tool to somebody and they, that person may not be in their head making the decision at that time. And then the tool's not that helpful. That's why we actually had more success in the intensive care unit where people were facing a decision uh, about surgery right then. And we knew we could get in there when they were wrestling with it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I also, I'm a perseverator too. Like I have to go home and think through just me trying to buy a car is a month's long decision. And so maybe that's what got me into decision making. <laughs> that's funny. See, I'm more of the, the in my relationship with my wife, she's like afraid to suggest something to me because I'll just want to make it happen. And <laughs> she needs some time to think about it. But I'm not always like that. And I'm aware sometimes that I am, I'll just make fast decisions. And then I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll go, oh my God, what did I just decide? Like I just spent all this money on this new toy. So anyway, it's those things that go into decisions. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate this. That I think this will be really helpful. It's it's both some of the basics about what's involved, but it's also about some of the challenges that for individuals, for society, for clinicians. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I listened to a couple of your other podcasts beforehand just to make sure I knew what I was getting into. (laughs) (laughs) And you've got some nice people. You've given some voices to some really thoughtful people that probably wouldn't have gotten some voices otherwise. So I think thank you for what you're doing, too. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate this. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Yeah, Danny. And you know where to find me if you need anything. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Bye. Cheers. See ya. (laughs) 
Perhaps this wide-ranging discussion covered too many facets of decision-making. I couldn't decide what to cut. We talked about decision aids at many points in life. Before surgery, in the ICU, at death. We spoke about stakeholder participation and aid development with different perceptions, perspectives, and biases. The more complex the decision or the severity of the illness, it's more likely families and caregivers will be stakeholders. Agency to make decisions increases as people go from children to adults and then reduce with dementia. We shifted to one-time decisions and continuing decisions require ongoing communication. I couldn't stop beating my drum about the black box of recording decisions and learning from the outcome of those decisions. Finally, we talked about people don't make decisions on schedule. They may have ongoing questions that need answers when they have the questions. My questions remain. Who is decision-making for, and how do we keep learning from decision-making? We, as individuals and in our experiments of one, as providers, and as communities. Thank you. Onward. the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.